everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Good Tech Fest podcast. My name is Andrew Means. I'm the founder of Good Tech Fest. In today's episode, I sit down with Anne Emery, a renowned data visualization expert, to talk about everything from data viz to starting your own independent consulting practice. But before we begin, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. This season of the Good Tech Fest podcast is sponsored by Okta for Good. Okta did not program a computer to play chess. Okta did not invent the toothpaste tube, Sweezer. Okta definitely did not park too close to you at the grocery store. Want to know what Okta did do? They built the world's best identity platform so that millions of people every day can safely use whatever technology they need. How do I know? Because they told me. But you don't have to take their word for it, or even mine. Visit Okta.com slash customers to hear from some of the world's most recognizable organizations about why they trust Okta. Organizations like Zoom, FedEx, Oxfam, and more. That's OKTA.com slash customers. Awesome, Anne. It is so great uh, to have you join me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Well, I'd love for you just to begin and introduce yourself for those that might be unfamiliar with you. Cool. Um, so I'm currently a database trainer, which I've been doing for a while because I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember when we co-presented, well, and with my colleague Johanna a million years ago at, I think it was the N10 conference. Yeah. I have no idea what city. It was probably 10 years ago. It was probably 2011 or 12. Um, so I was simultaneously this is a terrible idea i was doing grad school at night and had the regular salary job doing data evaluation a little bit of database thrown in and a couple of years after that i finished grad school and i was like now's the time i'm gonna go solo i no longer have a million hours of grad school work like that that was my, my brief planning i'll give people some advice too for how to make their transition a little bit smoother um, <laughs> so i've been working for myself now since 2014 and also had children added to the mix kind of at the same time along there. 2014, I think, was an interesting year because I had finally finished grad school after five years of doing night classes. I started working for myself, an idea I had for a little bit that I've been thinking about. And then my husband was like, we should have kids. This is perfect timing. And I was like, okay, why not? Um, and then I added on kid two and kid three and just... Um, Somehow, somehow it's all worked out. I've traveled full time in there too. It's been a, it's been a wild, wild decade in Anne Emery's life. I, I totally hear that. I, I remember us kind of co-presenting and you used to like be a big part of like the Duke Good Data conferences and things we did in Chicago. Um, but yeah, in this, in this whole period, you've juggled starting your own business, becoming a mother. Um, you were a full-time digital nomad before the, the pandemic hit. I, I'd love for you to just, like share a little bit about your lessons learned in that process. What was that experience like for you? Um, and for others that might be considering, you know, wanting to step out as an entrepreneur, wanting to, you know, figure out, hear from somebody who's been juggling all of these things. I'd love for you just to share, yeah, a little bit more about your experience. I have some really great advice that I didn't come up with that other very smart people have passed on to me over the years. So I just want to pass the baton. So for people who are maybe thinking about going solo, maybe thinking about it, dabbling in it, or if they're early on, um, Okay, here's the first thing that somebody told me. They said, save up a year's worth of expenses 
before you go out and work on your own. This is very conservative advice. I don't know many people who did that. I did that. But a lot of people are like, oh, I have a thousand bucks. I guess I'll go solo. I would say, look at your household spending for an entire year and make sure you have that amount sitting in your, not in your retirement account, like in your boring old savings account, because you may not be profitable at first. You may not make a single penny the first year. I did. I did quite fine my first year, but a lot of people don't make any money their first year. Or this is something I struggled with a lot. Payments take so long to come in. I kid you not, yesterday in the mail, I got a check for a project from, it was August, 2019, we did the project. So two and a half <laughs> years later, two and a half, that's a new record for me. Typically it's like three, six, nine months later, I do a lot of government work, nonprofit work. It just, it's just, there's, it just takes a while. It just takes a while. So ideally you have a year's worth of expenses as a nice cushion before you quit your salary job. I think that's, I also, um, yeah, no, I think that's great conservative advice, right? Because I do think for so many entrepreneurs, there's that pressure in your first year when you go out on your own uh, as a contractor, independent person, whatever, just working for yourself for that first time. And yeah, you are dealing with like, you know, easily 90 day, you know, payment terms. And that's after you maybe worked for them for six months. So it's like, there's just all of these kinds of things where managing cash flow can be a challenge, even if you are, you know, accruing value and creating value. Um, and I think that's, that's, it, it just helps remove, I think, some of that anxiety of knowing that, you know, I'm going to be fine and able to pay my bills as I'm building this thing. I think that's, that's excellent advice. There also are a lot of expenses that, it's, it's just really hard to tell what's going to come up. Like at first I did really basic accounting and you know me, I'm an Excel person. So I had my Excel spreadsheet with all my income and expenses. I did my taxes myself at first, but like over time, you kind of have to delegate some of those things to free up your time to do the, the higher level things that you're really good at and want to be doing. So like accountants cost a lot. Bookkeepers cost a lot. Accounting software. There's so many so many expenses that come up. So again, like having that cushion, it takes off so much anxiety, like you said. Absolutely. All right. Here's the next piece of advice that somebody else told me. They said, you should have your full-time job and be doing your own thing on the side, like your own consulting or side income on the side. You should be doing your side thing to a level where it feels like you're working two full-time jobs. That's the workload you should have. You should have your regular job and then you go home and you're like, okay, I'm going to work another like five, six, seven, eight hours on my side thing. Because that's how you make sure that there's enough demand from customers to make sure you can actually keep the income going once you start working for yourself. That's also another conservative stance. I did that kind of, I didn't fully follow that, but I think it's great advice to be on the safe side. Yeah, I think, you know, almost every one of the entrepreneurial ventures that I've done over the years, I've always, I, I've at least piloted or tested in a small way, um, while having some steady income, that I'll like just prove that there's demand for it, right? Like prove that I knew how to sell it, prove that I knew how to build it, uh, and get a customer base. And kind of when I hit that tipping point, and it's going to, I think, be different for different people. Like some people, they're going to be able to work two full-time jobs. Others, you have a lot of life demands or things that aren't going to enable you to do that. But I think it's about, can I prove that there's demand? Can I prove that I can do this in a sustainable manner, um, at least with some degree of confidence where I can make that leap and that jump? Um, 
um, to, to making that switch of doing it full time. I think it's like trying things out, experimenting, piloting, testing, I think is like one of the most important things for people as they're considering, you know, launching their own kind of practice or company or whatever it might be. We're going to get to the experimenting because that's a, that's a big thing. That's on my list too, to talk to you about. Um, you know, listeners don't. I, um, I was walking on the treadmill this morning, trying to like be a little bit healthy, typing up a list of things that I was going to go talk to Andrew about. So I have two more additions to the list Perfect. that I haven't sent to you yet. I was just thinking about these today. Okay. Here's another piece of advice that other people gave me. Plan for the worst, but don't let yourself catastrophize. So you have to think about like, if I make no money at all, if I make just a little bit of money, if I don't get to work on the types of projects I want to, like there's all these things that could go wrong. What's the worst that could happen? And some people, just depending on your personality type, you might be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to live out of my car. I'm going to have to, I don't take out loans. I think the worst that happens is you go work a regular salary job. That's the worst case scenario. You get a job. That's not a bad thing. There's so many great jobs out there in data. Like, oh my gosh, so many more than there even used to be when I started doing this. There's such a demand for data jobs. That's the worst that can happen is you have a job again. So it's like not that risky. It's not that risky. Yeah, it's like, I think that's such great advice again of like, basically understand what your downside risk actually is. Um, Cause it's not, it isn't oftentimes I'm going to lose everything and, and live out of my car. It's like, all right, worst case scenario, like, you know, I've racked up some, maybe some credit card debt, buying some supplies and I got to get a regular job. And it takes me, you know, some period of time to, to get back to even or whatever it might be. Like that's oftentimes the worst case scenario, uh, especially going out as an independent person with a, in a professional services business like yours. It's like understanding that worst case scenario. And I do think it's like, I think good entrepreneurs, at least that I've gotten to work with are ones that both understand their downside risk, but have an optimism and kind of see the world with a little bit of rose colored glasses and, and, and bounce between those two worlds, right? It's like, there's a sense of like, I could do really great. I could do, this could be amazing. And like worst case scenario, this is what it could be. And it's like, you kind of live in the middle of those two things. I think a lot of the time. Okay, so the next thing on my list is literally plan for the best. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> exactly like you said, right? You go back and forth, like what's the worst case scenario, but also what's the best case scenario because that can happen and probably will happen. With enough time, it will happen. Like this is so cheesy. It's like your wildest dreams can come true when you're self-employed. It is wild. There's no, it's not just income, like income's part of it, but I've gotten to work with groups that, are just like dream organizations that places that when I was fresh out of college years ago, I would like apply to work for these places. I didn't make it past all the interviews or anything, but they've always been on my list of like, oh, I'd love to do data with that group. And like, I get to now. It's amazing. I've gotten to travel to places I never imagined. Um, so I, you know, it's like when I'm tired or I haven't had enough caffeine or it's just been a long week. I'm like, oh, the sky's falling in. Oh, what's going to happen? But then it's like, there are so many good days too when you work for yourself and it's good to plan for that and just really, really big dream big because those things, those things have, I never thought I'd be a digital nomad. I mean, that was like <laughs> my dream to travel for work. I always wanted to do that. And like that happened, I made that happen 
on, I think it was year five, you know, so not year one, but by year five, there was enough demand from agencies all around the world that I was like, okay, I'm flying all, every single week, sometimes twice a week anyway. There's really no point of having a house anymore. There's just no point. I practically live out of hotels anyway. Um, my logic at the time, I must have been tired or something because my husband and I were like, I know he'll quit his job and we'll take the kids with us and we'll all travel all over to South America and Africa and Asia and Europe. That seemed really logical at the time. Now I'm like, how did we do that? I don't know how we did that. Somehow we made it, we made it work and made it like an amazing adventure time. Uh, I think that that's so right on of like, you're able to, to create and craft the life that's right for you. And, and one of the things I, I've always loved in the periods where I've been an entrepreneur working for myself is you get to kind of say like, this is worth it. This isn't worth it, right? Like I can kind of design, I can get on planes when I want to get on planes. I don't have to, and I don't want to, and I can bring my family with me. I can create these adventures. And, and to go back to what you're saying earlier, there's no better feeling, at least for me, than like getting hired uh, to do consulting work for a company that wouldn't hire you to work there full time. Like when you were early in your career, like there's, I definitely have had those moments where I was like, I applied for jobs here. And now I'm like, actually consulting to you in a way that like you, you never would have listened to me, even if I was hired into that job, like this worked out so much better for everyone. Um, and it's a great, yeah, it's always, it's been a great feeling for me over the years as well. All right. This next one, um, you touched on a little bit. I don't know if you said the word dabbling or if I was thinking it, but you were talking about giving yourself time to experiment and pilot and just kind of sort things out a little bit. Um, I think, you tell me if you agree, this is my theory that I've observed for myself and a lot of my self-employed friends. I think there are three phases, I th maybe four, I don't know, okay. I think I've seen people go through three phases. Phase one is dabble. You have to give yourself at least a year to dabble. For some people, it takes two or three or four or five years. You try like dabbling for me was somebody would say, can you design an infographic? And I said, yes. Can you take all of our data across all these databases, analyze it from scratch, write our huge report, make this do all that. Yes, I'll do it. Can you do evaluation consulting? Sure. Can you do a webinar? Yes. Can you come speak at our conference? Yes. I just said yes to everything at first. And you realize really quickly what you're good at, what you're like only so, so good at. Those projects don't feel good. Like don't do things that you're not enjoying. You're not the best at ever. You realize what types of groups you work best with. I like short projects because I've added three kids to the mix as this is gone. And figuring out maternity leave while you're self-employed is really, really tricky. There's just no easy way around that. So I really like the short-term projects. I had a couple um, year-long projects at first. And that's just tricky because then you're like, hey, I'm having a baby. Like, what do I do? I don't know. I just prefer to avoid all that mess. So you need a lot of dabbling time, at least a year to figure out what types of projects are really the right fit for you. And it's different for everybody. That's why you have to give yourself some time. And then the second phase that people generally go into is you start to niche down or, or niche down. However you say that word. Have you heard um, the niches are in the riches? Have you heard that before? It's like a business coaching. I hear it in masterminds a lot. Okay. The more niched or niched you are, the more profitable your business typically is. Like if you're scattering your services and your, and your brain all over the place, 
it's, it's just not, it's not going to be like the most effective business, but it's so counterintuitive when you really, really focus. Like for me, I do just data biz training now. I don't do consulting anymore. I'm happy to refer people to my trusted friends. So I've worked with over and over, but I just do training and I only do certain types of training on certain types of topics, but it took like a lot of dabbling to really focus. I only work with certain types of groups. I can't say yes to every content area. If it's a content area I've never worked in before in my life, it's just like, it takes too long to get up to speed. I just can't say like, I'm not the right person, but I'll refer you to the right person. Okay, so you dabble. Ideally, you niche down. Some people don't. And then you're supposed to work yourself out of a job. I really see that. And that's the phase like I'm halfway done with right now where you either delegate everything possible or what I'm working on is automating everything possible, which, which really in a logistic sense means like if I'm doing a private client training with a group, they sign up on my Zoom registration page. And then with all sorts of behind this, I don't know if I'm like speaking, I don't know if you use Zapier yeah, or, totally. or ConvertKit, but these things are all linked behind the scenes. Yep. So they get an automatic welcome message. They get in this password protected training site. They get all the materials that they're supposed to get. It's like very streamlined. So I spent like days figuring this out last year of like how to make this smoother. But now it's like what used to take maybe a day to set up before a training is like 15 minutes. So I'm just like working myself out of that busy work. I just don't have to do that. So I can step back and either have more free time to like go to the gym in the morning or spend more time with my kids um, or just free myself up to work on other types of projects that I'd rather be doing than, than all the busy work behind the scenes. Yeah, like one of the ways I think I've heard people talk about that is the difference between working in your business and working on your business, right? And like, I think that's absolutely part of the maturity as you as you grow is part of that's like around, all right, I'm going to think about how can I run this business more efficiently? And that's a lot of that's automation, delegation, that kind of like idea of working yourself out of a job so that you can then focus your energies on the things that only you can do um, versus like, you know, technology can just automate all of those, you know, signups, getting the emails and all of those kind of things. And, and I think the, the, the niche focus is so important. I think it's where a lot of people do go wrong is they, there's a sense of like, I have to continue to say yes to everything. I think absolutely dabble, play, experiment, figure out where your energy goes up and where it goes down and what you enjoy doing, what you're great at. Um, but then like focus on that niche. Um, I was talking with somebody just last night, and we we're talking about like entrepreneurs and businesses uh, here in the area. And they're like, yeah, they have a friend who all he does is hang artwork for people. And he now has a team of five people and all they, they do is hang artwork. Right. And it's like, I mean, that's just, I couldn't imagine that like you could create a sustainable business, but it's like he found a niche and he's like built a great reputation and clients and returning customers and all of that. And, and I think that focus actually gives people confidence in the services that you're providing. You feel like an expert and um, things of that nature. And I think it's like, that's, that's such a great flow of like dabble and experiment, find your kind of niche, build it up there and then begin this transition of like working yourself out of a job and automating and delegating and working on your business, not just inside of your business. And I think a lot of people start and they have this dream of like, I'm going to have passive income. I'm going to make money <laughs> while I sleep or whatever those like, I see these stupid YouTube ads of like guys standing in front of a sports car and they're like, attend my workshop and I'll teach and you it's how to always, a millionaire. It's like always white guys. Like it's always these it bros 
that are it's, like, it's let me show you how to make $100,000 a month in passive real estate income. What if I messed up online that YouTube ads are targeting <laughs> that type of stuff to me? I'm like, that's not for me. Anyway, yeah. People get this like, I, you know, this like myth of passive income and you can, passive income is a thing, but it's like, there's other stages that lead up to that. You can't just make passive income. You have to like dabble yeah. pyramid first and then really niche down and then automate everything. And then you either like, yeah, you make money while you sleep or I don't know, go retire early, get your time back, focus on your health. What a lot of people do is go focus on another project. They're like, oh, well, like this project's not demanding all of my mental space now. Cool. I'm going to go do this other thing I've always wanted to do or serve on this board or like be more involved with this agency that I've always wanted to be involved in. No, th this is, this is fantastic. Do you have any other pieces of advice for us? <sighs> the last one, I just want to keep it real. The emotional roller coaster. It never goes away. I've, I have so many friends who've been doing, you know, I'm on year eight, right? But I have friends who've been doing this 20 years, 30 years. And it's just, is this wild ride where you have good days and bad days. I, um, I have online courses and enrollment opens a couple of times a year because there's live sessions. We go through everything as a cohort. And I had one for my dashboard course a couple of weeks ago. And it's a Monday through Friday enrollment. So like you get one week, sign up because then the live classes start next week. And I had zero enrollments the first day, zero. I felt terrible about myself. It was like so low. I think I had one person sign up on Tuesday, maybe two people sign up Wednesday. Everybody signed up on Friday. It's 67 people total, which is actually really high. Like that's a great size group. But it's just like, geez, could the universe have given me like two people on the first day? You know, so you go from like the lowest of lows on a Monday, like, oh man, nobody wants to learn about dashboards anymore. I thought this was still a really useful thing to teach people about. So then Friday, it's like, oh my gosh, we have 67 people. And it's just all week long, just up and down, up and oh, down. Yeah. And it doesn't go away. And you just have to know like, okay, a roller coaster's coming. It's going to be a wild week. Just hold on, just hold on and wait till it's done. Absolutely. I, you know, I've run like the Duke of Data Conferences, now Good Tech Fest. And um, like back when we were doing Duke of Data, we were, we were doing big in-person events. We had, you know, a thousand people at some of those conferences. Um, about 70% of them sign up in the last four weeks. And it's like, oh. so you're like this, like this nerve wracking, like, oh. you know, I, I'm, I'm paying for catering. I'm paying for, you know, these venues, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, I don't know if anyone's going to show up. And now with like doing Good Tech Fest virtually, I mean, we probably have, I think it's like closer to like 80% to the last like two weeks of registration almost. And so it just is like, it, it is a roller coaster and in, in all kinds of different ways of like months where you're like, you're closing every proposal that you send out. And then months where you're like, I've sent out six proposals and not one of them has been signed, you know? And so it's just, it absolutely is that roller coaster. And I think you can learn, you can learn that you're on a roller coaster like, but the roller coaster doesn't go away. Yeah. I think that's, that's absolutely, absolutely great advice. So, uh, and where can people learn more about your fantastic data viz trainings? I'm pretty easy to find online. So just Google and K Emery, you'll find me. My company is depict data studio and LinkedIn is probably the best place to connect. So if people send me a note to say, Hey, I heard you and Andrew on his podcast. I'd love to connect. I'll accept your, your invitation for sure. We can be LinkedIn friends. 
Awesome. I mean, really, I, I would just say for everyone listening, if you're into data viz, if you're looking for data viz training and the stuff that you do is just fantastic. Um, all of your sessions at our conferences have done really well. You always get rave reviews. Um, and so if you're looking for data viz training, go check out Anne uh, and to picked data studio. And thank, thank you. you so much for joining. Appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. Huge thank you to Anne Emery for sitting down and having this conversation with me. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast and check out goodtechfest.com for our upcoming festival in May. Be sure to join me next week when I sit down with Woodrow Rosenbaum, Chief Data Officer at Giving Tuesday, uh, to talk about some of the exciting work that they have around data science. I'll talk to you soon.